Welcome to the What's Good Dough podcast and get ready to level up. But before we continue with the show, I want to introduce you to my two show sponsors, Uni Pizza Ovens and Cordo Olive Oil. Let's start with Uni. They are the number one pizza oven company in the world with the best community there is. Because of their ovens, I have made some of the most amazing pizzas. From round pies to squares, I'm able to get to temperatures of up to 900 degrees, allowing me to cook the pizzas of my dreams. If you're looking to grow your pizza business, buying an uni makes sense. My past guest Ryan of Sanctuary Pizza has a mobile catering company powered by uni. These powerful ovens are efficient, lightweight, and can be used almost anywhere. Whether you take pizza seriously like me or want to run a pizza operation like Ryan, Uni is the choice for you. Use the link in the show notes and join the Uni community. My second show sponsor is Cordo Olive Oil. At first, I didn't believe that olive oil mattered. It wasn't until I got educated and learned about the difference between commodity oil and Cordo's fresh squeezed olive oil that I ditched the supermarket stuff. Today, I only use Cordo Olive Oil when it comes to making my dough and even doing a post-baked drizzle. Mm. I have even made some amazing pesto with it. Oh my goodness. Cordo's high quality olive oil does really elevate anything it touches. My buddy Chris, who runs a slice of New Jersey, just switched over to Cordo. Not only is he getting quality, but he ended up saving money by switching over too. If you're still unsure of the difference, pizza operators can sign up for a free olive oil tasting. Use the link in the show notes to learn more. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my show sponsors and supporting this show. I've worked with like high school kids and stuff and like I get really frustrated when kids tell me they don't like math or science and it's like you were born liking this stuff like you were born experimenting. That was Mike Bayona of Rose Hill Sourdough and it's your boy I Drift and you're listening to the What's Good Dough podcast. Whether it's pizza, business or life, my guests and I are always talking about ways we can level up. I want to share with you all my Instagram live with Mike Bayona. And this is really going to be helpful if you are a sourdough fan like myself. Honestly, sourdough is one of the hardest things I've ever tried to take on in my entire life. Seriously. I've had so many times where I felt like I've given up. I've had so many times where I've reached this high and I was like, oh my goodness, this is delicious. And really my focus and my obsession with it is because I'm trying to gear up for Pizzaioli pop-up this summer. Uh, My goal is to be able to run a pop-up exclusively with sourdough, something I've never done before. And the hard thing about it is making sure that your fermentation is on point. And so for those of you who are working with sourdough, I think this is going to be an amazing episode. Obviously, this was an IG live, so the quality is not the best. I'll be upfront and honest, but the content is there. Please also ignore like some of the lag and you know the shout outs that we're doing because it is IG Live. Um, but again, I hope that this is something that helps at least one person out there who wants to work with sourdoughs or is already working with sourdough. Um, I've been doing a lot of work in the kitchen and this podcast really helped me, so I hope it helps you. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. And remember to always ask, what's good, dough? So, sourdough workflow. I am doing my best over here. And I'm going to be straight up and honest. It's like, I'm trying to find, I'm trying to find the easiest way. Like, but I, I have a feeling that I just need to put more preciseness in it. Um, but I've been I've been doing exclusively sourdough for I don't know maybe close to a year now, um, and I've been hearing conflicting things and I'm trying out different things. But I wanted to reach out to you because you are one of the people I, that I look up to when it comes to sourdough, and basically <laughs> and nothing else. Smart, smart man. <laughs> No, there's plenty of things uh, that I look up to you for, for sure. <laughs> Let's talk sourdough. We don't have all the time. Sa- no, I'm just kidding. Let's talk sourdough. No, I don't. I gotta. Just like, um, 
Yeah. So I guess my first question for you, yeah. bulk ferments necessary or not? Uh, take a step back. What are you defining as bulk ferment? Letting, uh, so I have a mixer now, which kind of threw yep. everything. It threw my whole process off because I was following your five hour stretch and fold every 30 minutes from your book. Yeah. Yeah. And when I picked up the mixer, I was like, okay, I am now mixing till I get the window pane till it looks white and shiny. And then it kind of got me thinking, now what mm. do I, do I leave it in the ball in bulk on the, on the counter or do I just divide it up and put it in the fridge? And then when I'm ready, pull out the ball and let it come to temperature and, and ferment, um, and then bake. It's kind of, okay. okay so there's two really important things you said there. So one, you said, do I, can I ball it up right off the mixer? Um, and by right off the mixer, we probably are talking like a 15 minute rest right off the mixer. It's probably way too tight right off the mixer to ball. Yeah. Um, and then you, the other thing you said was, can I put it in the fridge right away? So those are two different things, whether it's, it's in balls or not, whether you put it in the fridge. So I think for um, the question about, can you ball it up right off the mixer or like after a 15 minute wait? Yeah, you can. And that's um, what the AVPN does. So they'll make their dough and they'll ball up right after kneading. And then you'll do like a 24 hour room temperature proof in balls. So I guess the distinction we're making is like from like a professional baker's perspective is like a bulk being like the bulk of your dough. It's all in one big mass. That's what you're calling as your bulk ferment. Um, I kind of make that distinction in the book. I don't, I don't really like to use that word because I think it, when, when you're like baking in a massive environment, it makes sense to have this like massive tub of dough that you're bulking and then you um, like pre-shape and shape all those loaves and like put them into baskets and stuff. Like that's kind of where we get that language from. But for like a home pizza maker, I think we can kind of get confused on the terminology. So I don't really like to use the word bulk. Like I just call everything the proof. Okay. And what I would say for you um is I still would recommend you keep it warm before you hit it before it goes in the fridge. Um, so even though you're, you're in your mixer and you're not relying on that five hours to build gluten strength, cause you've already um, built your full gluten strength from your mixer. Um, I would still recommend keeping the balls warm, whether you're doing it as a, as a big bulk ball or as you're doing individuals, I would still, Definitely not in Scotland. No, I'm not in Scotland. <laughs> Sorry, Scotland. It is uh, is like three in the morning there right now. I thought after we put this on the books, I was like, oh shoot, I probably should have done this at like a little bit of better time for the UK. <laughs> that was my bad. That was my bad. Like my daughter goes to bed right now. I come out and hang out with Nigel for a little bit. Um, but yeah, going back to it. So you still need some time warm for your sourdough to um, start going through its process. So there's three big processes it's going to go through. And I know you know this stuff already, but um, I'm just going to say it again. So the first thing is respiration. And we talk about, um, we talk about like everything with this big grouping term of fermentation, but fermentation is really a bunch of different things that we just kind of throw the word fermentation at. Um, but technically it goes to respiration first. And like home brewers will know what I'm talking about when, I'm t- when I talk about respiration. It's basically when all the oxygen gets eaten up. And that's really important because the yeast and the bacteria can only replicate when there's oxygen. So this is why we do things like vegas, like really, really low hydration vegas will grow a bunch of yeast because there's so much surface area and so much um, access to oxygen that it'll stay in respiration for a really long time before it goes into fermentation. So it's the exact same thing when you're at the gym working out and you're in aerobic and then anaerobic and your muscles start to freaking hurt when you're in anaerobic. It's the exact same thing that's happening with your dough. It's switching from aerobic to anaerobic. So it's going from respiration, which is aerobic, which uses oxygen to anaerobic and that's fermentation. And so it only starts fermenting when it doesn't have any oxygen left because when it has oxygen, when it's in an aerobic environment, that's the easiest way for it to create energy ATP. It's all goes back to chemistry. So you want, um, you want to, you want, I would say you still want to keep it warm 
Because as soon as you cool everything down, you're slowing all those processes down. The first one you're going to slow down is your respiration. Okay. Now, the second thing that goes into is fermentation. And then the other important step there is maturation. It doesn't really go in a super linear order, but maturation we define as the things that enzymes are doing. So specifically when you get started in pizza making and you just use yeast, you just think about um, the yeast and you get taught like it's eating the sugar and that creates CO2 and that makes your bread fluffy. That's all correct, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And one of the big things that gets left out specifically with like new pizza makers is the enzymatic activity. And I group all that with the term uh, maturation, um, like the maturing of the dough. And the enzymes are responsible for breaking down those starches into those sugars. So that needs to happen also. And those sugars are then what the yeast and bacteria eat when they're respirating and when they're, um, when they're fermenting. So that maturation process also needs to start. So as soon, as soon as you're chucking that in the fridge, you're slowing all that stuff down. You're slowing the enzymatic ac- activity down. You're slowing the yeast activity down. You're slowing the, the bacteria um, activity down. And so I don't know if you've done straight to the fridge, but typically that needs a lot longer and doesn't do as well with sourdough as it might with a really strong commercial yeast. Is that what you've experienced when you've gone straight to the fridge? So I feel like when I've gone straight to the fridge, it I'd have to take it out and maybe I'd wait like 16 hours for the balls to be ready individually. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if like all of that still, or hasn't happened yet because it was sitting in the fridge. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So the enzymes are probably still at work. So the enzymes were probably still breaking down that starch, but the yeast and bacteria was so slow because of the cold that it wasn't eating any of that sugar the enzymes was making. So if you took off a sample of that dough and just analyze it, I bet the sugar content would be higher because there would be more sugar available for the yeast and bacteria to eat than they can because they're so slow because of the temp. But interestingly the thing you're doing i would actually i think is actually a little dangerous is not the right word one of the cool things about working with sourdough is like it drops the ph of the dough and so it doesn't get infected it's the same thing as like pickling like the ph drops to like a safe level so you're probably fine like a really clean environment like in your home fridge and stuff you probably shouldn't even worry about that Um, but i would say going straight to the fridge too you're not giving the chance for the ph to drop and i would say that like if you hold that if you have a ph meter and you let it sit in the fridge for like two days and you pulled it out and took the pH, I bet the pH would be really similar to what it was when you first put it in the fridge um, because it hasn't really done a whole lot um, sitting in the fridge. It might go up a little bit because the bacteria can take the fridge temperatures a little bit better than the yeast. So it might've started working on some of that bacteria, um, might've started working and making like lactic acid and acetic acid. So it might be a little bit lower, but you're seeing the poofiness. It's not ready because that yeast has had no time to do anything because it's been so cold. So right. your dough's been like prepping, but you've kind of rearranged mm-hmm. the order in which things go in your chart. Yeah, I basically have just been doing all visual, like when the ball looks jiggly enough, I'm like, okay, it's probably ready to go. But I kind of want to narrow down or at least have a more streamlined process. Um, I did get a pH meter, one from Apera. And I haven't used it yet because yes. I'm, I'm, I'm scared. That but, okay, let's talk so, about that. Is that the one that comes with the little three calibration vials? Yes. Yes. I love that meter. I have not okay. talked enough about that meter. So a para gifted me a meter um, like last year. And I'm sorry, Apera, I owe you a bunch of posts on that because I love that meter. And I will oh, I'm I'm so start talking a whole lot more about that. Yeah, because you can only get it in the U.S. So I didn't want to talk about it while I was still in the U.K. Um, so, but I, I need to start pushing it now in the U.S. because I, I totally stand behind that meter. It's so great. Um, and I love that it comes with the really fine tip. So a lot of the pH meters have this like big glass ball and they're more for like liquids where the Apera one is made for like cheese and meats and, and, and bread. Um, and then it also comes with the calibration vials, which is just fun to do every once in a while, just like recalibrate with known pHs. Such a nerd. I love it. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I, I feel like that's what stopped me from doing it because I was like, okay, if I have to recalibrate this right before, I feel like I have to be really focused. I can't just like take it out of the box and stick it in there. Uh, I have, and so I've been waiting till I have like half a day to do it just because I, I don't want to mess it up. Um, 
the first time you calibrate it Uh it'll be fine after that like it's a professional meter that's why it comes with those recalibration liquids it's it's meant for somebody like on a food line like doing random samples of stuff to make sure that like food safeties yeah exactly so for you as like a, a a home pizza maker You'll be, you'll probably calibrate it once and then in six months you calibrate it again. It's no big deal. Nice. Okay. Sweet. Okay. Then let's talk pH. Is that like, um, yeah. is that okay? Okay. Yeah. What, yeah sure. Cause I feel like that's how I envision myself knowing when bulk fermentation is done and knowing when, or I guess, sorry, let's when knowing when proofing, uh, hits a certain stage where I should ball it out and knowing when proofing is at a certain stage when I can start pressing out the balls. Um, yeah, is that, yeah. is that a, is that a good assumption? Yeah. So I can't remember the guy's name right now. It's like a lot. So I think it's like B A L A Z O or something. I can't remember his name, but he's on, um, he's on Instagram and he's the one that I first started following talking about like how you can measure the proof with pH and he has these really amazing plots of pH over time. And when he does bread, but you can apply the same principles to pizza. So he does like when um, he does his shape, when it goes in the fridge, and then when it's ready to bake. So he still does like a warm, a bulk proof, if you want to call it. And then he does a, a cold proof. Um, and he has like a whole uh, workflow of like when to know when to do those things just based solely on pH. Um, and all the plots are really cool. And I'm a huge nerd. So I love making graphs. So, um, you can like see, um, the plot over time. And then you basically apply that to your dough. And I can't remember what the key pH is that you're looking for, but like four and a half might be one and four might be another one. Basically like as it gets more and more acidic, um, you start straddling the line of like, Oh, I know this is going to be overproof soon. So that's when I want to use it because it's going to be like at its, at its fluffiest. Mm. Okay, I will have to bug you for that Instagram handle. Yeah, I'll, I'll, when I'll you show think you. About it. Yeah, I'll show you. Okay. Do I need to cold proof my dough, or can I just go all you don't content? Have to cold proof. Okay. You don't now, have to. so with that, hold on. Just one more piece of information. Even yeah. with like flowers that have a high W value, where like not only does it recommend higher hydration, but extended proving times. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm trying to find some shade here. There we go. That's okay. So move around. Okay. So if you've got a really strong, say you've got like a really strong hard wheat, uh, like a Canadian Manitoba or something like a 320 W or something. It's a really hard wheat. That just tells you that it can handle longer fermentations. Um, But you've got to remember that like, all of these things that you're doing, you have to kind of do a little bit of calculus in your brain. I know like our number is only sitting at seven right now because I'm probably getting way too technical here, but whatever. It's just me and you hanging out. Um, like you need to remember that like these are rates of change that you're in control of. And so the ultimate end goal of fermentation might be like a certain number, but the rate at which you approach that number is different. So it's the same as me driving to you in San Jose right now it's probably 450 miles, right? And during different stages of that drive, I'm going to be going faster or slower. And that's going to get me to San Jose in a certain amount of time. Now I can go to San Jose on California one, the whole way and go slower. And I'd still wind up there. And that in like, from like a fermentation corollary uh, is me using a little bit less yeast and maybe using a little bit cooler temperature, but I'm still going to get to that point a certain time. Um, and then if I took Highway 5 the whole way up, I'd get there a lot quicker, uh, especially if I drove in the middle of the night. That might be putting more sourdough in and cranking up the temperature. Mm-hmm. So you're still hitting the endpoint. It's just how long it's taking you to hit that endpoint. Now, it's just like photography. There's a lot of different variables we get to play with. Just like in photography, when you're messing around, Andy Abilene just joins. He's going to love this chat with um, aperture and your ice sensitivity and your shutter speed. You're playing around with those variables. Um, to try to expose a photo and let a certain amount of light into your sensor. It's the same exact thing when you're making sourdough. You're playing with temperature. You're playing with seed. um, You're playing with salt. You're playing with hydration. And you have to know how all of those things, you're playing with flour to get back to your question. You need to know how all of those things affect those rates of change to when to get to your final like perfectly proved destination. 
which of mm. course is San Jose, California. So, right. um, so what, so I guess what I mean by that is like, you can use a, a higher W number flower. I would recommend proving that a little bit longer. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to cold prove it for longer. Maybe you prove it warmer or you prove it with a little bit less salt or you put a little bit more sourdough in it. Like you can prove it for the same amount of time as a really weak soft flour. I can make flour with a really generic or I can make pizza with a really basic AP flour that's really soft and has a super low W number. And I can prove it for the same amount of time as your high W number with a little bit of a different recipe. And we could hit the same proofness at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah. So then if you want to extend the fermentation, it would make sense to maybe change the water temperature a bit or the inoculation, less sourdough to extend it, right? Yep. So you can, if you want to extend it, you can drop the amount of inoculation or the seed percentage. You can drop that down. Um, you can add more salt, you can cool down your water, um, you can leave it in the fridge for longer. Your, your fridge is kind of like a pause button on the whole thing. Now, certain things are still happening in the fridge, specifically with sourdough. And you see that. Take a, a jar of sourdough that you fed eight hours ago and it's, it's nice and peaked and throw that in your fridge and then leave one on your counter of the exact same thing. And the one on your counter is going to collapse and lose structure faster. Because all of those enzymes that are being secreted by the bacteria, it's going to break down all that structure. It's going to collapse on itself. That's still going to happen to the one on your fridge. It's just going to take longer. And that shows me that bacteria is still working, even at fridge temperatures. It just is slower. So, so everything's still working in the fridge. It's just slower rate. Is the refrigerator just a slowdown button? Is there any other benefit to cold-proving your dough? So this is where I... So it starts to get a little technical and I've read some papers on this and it, it starts to get a little interesting here with the cold proof specifically. So here's what I think happens. And I'm sure there are people who've been doing this longer than me or like sourdough librarian who could probably add a little bit more science to this and explain a little bit better. But what, what I've seen anecdotally in, in the dough that I make, uh, someone said, ask more lactic acid. Yeah. So it's in the fridge. I think the bacteria has a better shot at those sugars than the yeast. And let me explain what I mean by that. It's like yeast is a lot bigger than the bacteria in your dough. And at normal room temperature, they're both fighting for resources and the yeast has an easier time accessing those resources. When you start to slow everything down, I found that the yeast start to slow down and not get access to those resources as fast. And that allows the bacteria have access to those resources. Now the bacteria are then making lactic and acetic acid. Um, so that's acidifying your dough. And they're also secreting more enzymes that's breaking down that gluten structure. So to me, the longer, colder prove that I do allows that dough to be more uh, digestible. Uh, and it, I think also gives it a more sour flavor um, if I'm cold proving it. But really important detail there I feel like you cannot skip out on the warm or at least room tent proof in the beginning because yeah. you have to go in a certain order. Now, you don't, I, I said you have to go, you don't have to go because you've proven you don't have to go in that order. You've gone straight to the fridge and then you come out. But what you've shown is when you don't go in that order, then instead of waiting four hours for that dough to come up to room temp, you then uh, have to wait 16 hours because it has to, not only come up to room temp, but now it has to prove at a lower temperature and that yeast is finally getting access to that, um, that sugar. And now it's starting to leaven your dough. So you, you've just changed the timeline a little bit. That's fine. That's a, I mean, that's a cool experiment. I kind of want to try that now to see what happens. Like what if you play with the, the variables a little bit? That's fine. Yeah. And Mike, you do have a soothing voice. So I'm glad someone <laughs> here is tuning in. Um, I listened to a lot yeah, of Luther Vandross when I was a kid. I think my dad's on right now. He could probably attest to that. A lot of Marvin Gaye, a lot of Luther Vandross. <laughs> Sing something for us. <laughs> no. It's a different life. I think the bulk fermentation pushes the rise a little bit faster because you have all of that internal heat still built up. Whereas if you have the individual dough ball, it's coming from cold. It's going to take way longer for that, I guess, for that activity to start heating up the dough, right? 
And so that's why I feel like the the time for fermentation is a lot slower the way I do it. Mm. It's interesting because you, br- you bring up a couple of good, like two points again there, because we're talking about almost like a little two by two matrix here of like bulk, meaning like a big ball of dough mm-hmm. and then, and then individual dough balls and then warm and then cold. And some interesting stuff does start to happen. And pizza operators know this where uh, depending on like, I can't, I can't remember. I was talking to one guy. I can't, he had a really good, nice name for it, like thermal shock or thermal load. But when you like basically warm crash your fridge, like you have to know how to use your fridge and how much heat you can put in that fridge and how long you expect it to cold crash your dough. Because if you're putting kilos and kilos of warm dough in your fridge, especially in, in massive balls, your fridge's temperature is going to spike and your fridge is going to work really hard to bring that dough temperature down. But there's a good chance that dough is sitting at you know a warm temperature, 70, 80 degrees for four or five hours if it's a big ball. And I've, I've done the tests that show that in a normal fridge, you know, dough that starts out in the eighties will slowly ramp down, but it's not going to hit 37 degrees for five hours. And so and it, that's worse with a bigger ball. And again, that's just you doing those mental, those, that mental math, the little calculus in your brain to go, cool. I know my rate's going to be a little slower if I go with a big ball. So that means on my last fold, maybe it's at a five hours so I'm doing a little more dough this time. I'm just going to do four. And I'm going to put it in the fridge knowing it's going to take a little bit longer to go down. And it, this is why we tell people like when you're thinking about getting in the pizza business to like have pop-ups and like practice making dough at scale, because you need to start thinking about these things too. You need to start thinking about fridge space. You need to start understanding how the fermentation of your dough is going to be a little bit different. You need to start understanding hundred dough balls over the course of a service. Do you get dough out of the fridge midway through your service? Do you stack your dough a certain way? Is your fridge, is your dough stacked to a refrigerator that happens to be warmer on the top than it is the bottom? Like you need to start understanding those things because it's all that calculus, it's all that time, it's all rates of change. Understanding when you're getting to that end point of, again, not to beat a dead horse, me driving from here to, to you. <laughs> I have been like hitting it maybe two or three times a week just so I can get ready for the pizza yolo pop-up pizza yoli pop-up this summer and i want to be able to put out a bunch of pizzas actually i want to do multiple charity events this summer uh, i have a couple of causes that i want to raise money for and so i'm just trying to lock down my dough before all of that happens and so this is yeah this that end goal thing is actually a really good analogy just figuring out when the dough hits that finish line so you can start baking I guess my main thing is trying to find out where the midway point is uh, mm. for when I start putting them into balls. When is the most ideal? And I think I'd have to go back to the pH for that ultimately. Mm. Yeah. And I think the thing this comes down to is like why I love this stuff so much is it all comes back to just like good scientific method and just like good writing good tests and running good tests. And all that comes down to is repeatability and not changing too many variables at once and just committing to knowing that it's not going to be right the first, fifth, 10th, 15th time and being really diligent and making sure that you're not changing too much. So for you with this test that you're doing, the first thing I would start with is time. Like when do you want to make the dough and when do you want the dough to be ready and lock down that variable, just like if you're a pizza operator. So I want to make dough on this day and I want the dough to be ready this day and then work through all the variables without changing that time goal. So the variables there are going to be the type of flour that you want to use, how much flour you're going to use, how much salt you're going to use, the temperature of the water going into your mixer, the temperature of your dough coming out of your mixer, whether you're going to ball or not, or leave it in bulk, how long you're going to let it bulk. And then when it goes in the fridge and that is going to be a, become a massive matrix. And you're just going to have to take notes and your truth is going to be pH. So you're going to say, I'm going to run test one today with all these variables. And you're going to take pH points every half an hour, every hour. And you're going to do it by feel just to get yourself kind of a truth line. And then you're going to go, cool. Next time I do it, my expectation is my pH is going to drop faster because I'm going to let it prove faster because I'm going to raise the temperature of the water or whatever it is, whatever your end result is, whether you felt like it was proved, you know, underproved or overproved, then you're going to change one variable 
and then you're going to try to see what the effect of that is going through. And some of that stuff you can lock down based on your workflow. Do you have fridge space? Yes or no. If you have fridge space, cool ball. If you don't have fridge space, sweet, leave it in bowl. There's salt, you can't really go anywhere below two or it's going to be bland. You can't really go above three. You're going to be super bloated. <laughs> so like, you know what I mean? So like, you're going to, you know, yeah. like lock a couple of those things down, lock a couple yeah. of those things down and then, and then work from there. And flour, a lot I mean, flour is getting expensive. So for a lot of operators, flour is another variable that you just need to lock down. Like, I'm going to choose this flour. I know this miller or whatever. And I'm going to lock that one down and then go from there. Don't be changing a bunch of your flowers trying to make this work. Don't be going off on a W number hunt. A lot of times millers won't even tell you what the W number of the flower is anyway. Yeah. I'm wondering if I can like, I just bought a bag of super nuvola, but I'm wondering if I could just use cheap all purpose flour for all of my, for all of my experimentation and then use that knowledge and apply it to the more expensive flour later down the line. What do you think about that? I, th I think you could do that from like a cost saving perspective. Um, the super nuvola is going to perform um, pretty similar. Well, so it's going to perform differently in some aspects and similar in other aspects, like absorb, absorb activity. I think it'd actually be pretty similar to a, a good brand all purpose flour here in the state. So you got to remember that nuvola is a soft wheat. Um, it's a high protein soft wheat, but it's still a soft wheat. And a lot of the all purpose flours here in the States are blends of soft and hard wheats. So yeah, you probably could get away with like, um, you know, gold medal all purpose, something that's going to be super repeatable for all of your, um, all of your tests. And then once you lock that recipe down, when you go to change it, know what that expectation of that change is going to be. Go, okay, cool. I think this needs to go a little faster because it can take a little bit longer to hit that same time frame. So I need to maybe put a little bit warmer water in it to get it going. You got to remember too, that like we haven't even talked about the amount of starches available to be broken down. Like that's different by mill. Um, there's all these different variables, like there's enzymes added or is the flour oxidized. Like there's all kinds of other stuff that's happening in the background that changing flour isn't about just like one W number to the next. I know that's kind of the new fun thing us home bakers like to talk about is W number, but there's, that's just us pretending like we have enough knowledge. Like W number is the top of Mount stupid because there's so much more happening in flour that if you take a W number from Canada and a W number from uh, the UK and a W number from the U S and they all have the same exact W number and you try to make dough with them, they'll all be different. Mm -hmm. So don't just get settled on the W number thing. Like find a flower that you really either support the miller um, or you like the flavor. I think it's probably most important. Um, yeah. And that works for your workflow and go from there. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. We got I a have lot a of feel good flour in the States, man. You don't need to do. import an Italian flour. We got a lot of good flour here. My, uh, my flower connect uh, was using central milling at first and then recently switched to super nuvola because he's been dabbling in the Romans and at the Roman yeah. pizza school, they use super nuvola. And so he's just, yeah. he's gone full Caputo and, um, he's the one who supplies me my flour, but I did find chef's warehouse, uh, maybe like 45 minutes away from me. Uh, and so I'm going to see what they have over there and if I can get my central milling again. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm bummed that here, because in, in the UK, Costco would stock uh, this brand Marriages, and it was a Marriages Canadian um, Manitoba flower, and so I could buy it in huge sacks, and I loved it. And I thought, man, it's been three years. I'll go to a Costco in the states. Maybe they're stocking good flour now. And I went to Costco, and it's now it's still the same, you know, bleached and bromated flour that they've had forever. And I was like, I can't believe still people are still using this. Yeah, get out of here, PTO. <laughs> they, I get my Costco, they have, uh, and you've got access to great flour. <laughs> they have a central milling all purpose at my Costco. So that's what no I've been way, eating my sourdough really? starter with. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. So I've been actually thinking about using it to make pizza, uh, just to play around with, just because it's so affordable. But I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to play you with can some great. It's, well, it, Again, it depends. It depends what kind of style of pizza you're trying to make too. Like we got to bring it back to that, right? Like a lot of these styles of pizza, 
became those styles because of the flour and the technology they had available to them to make pizza. Mm-hmm. So like it, it, you have to remember, like when you're going back to what style of pizza are you even trying to make and what oven are you trying to make it in? Mm-hmm. Is it the right oven? Is it the right environment? And that didn't let that kind of guide what you're trying to do in terms of, you know, the flour you're trying to make. If you're trying to make a, uh, you know, super hot and fast Neapolitan in 45, 90 seconds. And yeah, you might need a soft wheat, you know, double oat flour. But if you're trying to make something with a little bit more chew and a little bit more body that can handle some more toppings, you're going to need something that's a harder wheat, you know? So it depends what you're trying to do. I just want to say, so I think first step is running the same thing you've been doing. Like if your workflow works that you can build full gluten strength in your mixer and you can ball after a short rest off the mixer and you've got fridge space to, you know, handle all those balls and containers. Fantastic. Do that. But I would, I would probably still let them warm proof just so you're, you know, everything's getting nice and active in that new mixture. Um, and then potentially there's another touch point, but I guess it's less than, you know, folding the dough 17 times. You might want to then go through and reball, like be really careful not to degas everything, but now like AVPN would never do that. They'd ball at the one time and let it prove over 24 hours and they'd be ready to go. But sourdough with an extra extensibility that you get from breaking down the dough structure, like you might want to just reball it real quick before you pop it in the fridge. Maybe try it once without it and see if it's okay. Sweet. See if they're if they're coming out as discs or if they're if they're puffing up a little bit. I've actually been doing that. It's it's funny that you okay. said that. Yeah, just because I feel like when I try to ball the first time, sometimes it's not sealing all the way, and they are yeah. spreading out. And so I just found that like letting it rest a little bit and then balling it again gives me a tighter seal. Um, so you might get the same effect by letting it sit in the mixer for longer before you try to ball it. So you might not be, if you're eventually getting a tight seal on the bottom, but when you first ball it, it's not tight. It might be because the dough still has too much strength from that mixer run. And it might be still really elastic and it might be just like pulling those seams apart. So let it sit for a little bit longer. That makes so much sense. Yeah, because I was like, how come my dough keeps pancaking out? And then I finally realized thanks to leopard crust that I'm not like make making a strong ball so that it balloons upwards. Instead, it's like, it's been flattening out, but it's probably because my dough is still tight and it keeps like reopening up. Okay. Let me ask you this. Might just be fighting it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. When, when do you typically say, okay, it's ready to go into the fridge. (laughs) <laughs> uh it's it's not i'm not gonna sound like a really uh good coach here because i it's just by feel like i've got loose timers in my mind um like i set timers i do folds and stuff but it's really once i feel that the dough isn't fighting me anymore it's nice and fluffy it's got bubbles on the top it's not sticking to my hands um and it can kind of hold its own shape then and, and the smell, I don't smell any more raw flour. Like that's usually what I go off a lot too. Like I, I smell it's kind of entered into what other, other uh, what, you know, stage of fermentation or whatever. I, it's really hard to describe, but we just have to make pizza dough together. And I, I'll show you. Cause like, okay, you kind of get to a point where you're like, oh, this feels right. Like the, the, the density of it feels right. Mm-hmm. Like you kind of lift your container and you're like, oh, that look like if it was denser, that should be heavier than it is. Okay, cool. I'm going to do kind of my last fold on here, get a nice tight seal, pop that in the fridge. Cause I've been in the UK, so I, I haven't had fridge space to be able to ball and, and, you know, do uh, balls in the fridge. So I've had to keep my balls, you know, one big dough ball and, and toss in the fridge and cold proof it as one big ball and then come out and, and ball after the fridge. Now there's downsides to that. Like your dough is much more likely to tear if you ball out of the fridge. Um, for the exact reason as you were having balling up your dough too soon after the mixer, you're not getting a good seam because it's so tight because it's cold that it's not, um, you're not able to get a really good seam on the bottom. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll portion everything out 
and I'll give it a, a loose ball. And then I'll come back a little bit later and make sure it's got a nice tight seam on the bottom. And then I'll let it sit for four or five hours. But yeah, the only times I really ever get, you know, tears in my dough is when I'm rushing balling and I probably should have, if I had the fridge space, balled it up prior to going in the fridge and then it would have been better. It's just like, it's the same, it's protein. Like it's, it's your muscle fibers. Like if you tear your muscle, like it needs time to come back together again. And it's the mm-hmm. same thing in that dough. When you're cutting that dough, physically tearing those strands of glue, it's not super glue. It doesn't just come back together again. Like stuff's going to happen like mechanically, chemically in that dough to bring those strands back together, create a seal. And you see where it, it is loose or where it's thin is because, oh, I had bad balling technique or you know, bad stretching technique. And you can tell right where it's going to tear. And then you just got to decide if you're going to calzone it or if you're just going to take a ride and live with the potential tear. <laughs> Living life on the edge over here, right? That's right. <laughs> okay. So when you're taking it out of the fridge, then are you is essentially your dough ready to go? You just are waiting for it to come to temp. Would you say that? Yeah. Yeah. So two things are happening. So one, um, that because it's coming back up to temperature and because the enzymes, Jimmy says, calzone it. Uh, I've been, I've taken that ride. You know, you don't know until you're in the moment, whether you're going to, it depends to how many people are like, am I going to calzone it or am I taking a risk? <laughs> um, so, so there's a couple of things happening. All that enzymatic activity has been breaking down those starches if there's any left and releasing those sugars, right? So there's going to be sugar in your dough that that yeast is going to get a hold of as soon as it starts getting up temperature. And it's going to create some air in that dough. That dough will prove it will get bigger um, as it warms and sit in that dough tray. So you are creating a fluffier dough out of the fridge. Um, so that's an important part too. It's not just ready to go. You're just waiting to get to room temperature. Like there's other things happening there. Um, but the biggest reason outside of, you know, nailing that fermentation and getting it properly fermented and properly proved is cold dough is just impossible to stretch. You lose all of that extensibility because of the thermodynamics of cold dough. You must let that dough get to room temperature or warmer in order for open to, for it to open up because it's going to fight you if it's cold. So those are the two biggies, why you have to let it get to room temperature. And I do the same thing for my pan pizzas. I don't do it for bread. Um, and there's a little bit of a different reason why I don't do it for, for bread. But for pan pizzas specifically, um, I will bring my cold dough out of the fridge. I'll give it a little coil fold. I put it in the pan and then I let it sit for as long as it needs to, again, have that little bit extra proof um, and, and be able to spread out to the edges, um, but also have the extensibility to puff when I bake it. Now, I do a covered parbay too. It's a little bread baking technique, um, trap some of that steam in there and allow that dough to stay extensible for longer um, so that it, it fills the, you know, gets a little bit of extra height in it. I was doing that covered par bake for a minute and then I found that it was making my dough a little too wet inside, especially with a higher hydration. And I wasn't liking the way the interior of my dough was with a higher hydration dough. Like it was a little mushy for me. And so I've since stopped doing the covered par bake, but I did like the rise that it was getting from having covered par bake. So do you just recommend that if I were to do it again, bake it for a little longer uh, on the second bake or bake it longer? A couple of things you could do. You could drop the temperature a little bit. Um, so the higher temperature is going to, um, cook, make so the, the outer edges of your, your dough are going to get too crispy. Like they're going to burn basically before the, the center's done. Cause it, what it sounds like you're describing is like, um, it was like a little wet, like maybe a little raw still in the middle. Um, so you could bake it for longer, but at a lower temperature and that'll prevent the sides from browning too much. Um, but you got to remember dough's aqueous which is just a fancy science words for there's water in it um and if there's water in it the center of that dough is never getting above 100 degrees 212 fahrenheit 100 degrees mm-hmm. so it doesn't matter what temperature you're baking at the the dough is never going above 100 so it's the it, it, it has more water in it it needs longer to bake that water out so in order to combat that you turn your temperature down that's why you don't do a 90 percent dough water dough at 500 degrees celsius in a neapolitan style oven 
it just like it doesn't have enough time to bake all that water out. You need a lower temperature oven in order to bake all that water out. So if you're do- going really, really high hydration with the really thick pizzas, like I do my Detroit's stupid thick and I bake them for a really long time. Um, depending on the type of oven that I'm in, I might put like blockers in the oven, like heat shields in the oven. Like I might bake it on a rack, but put a pizza steel under the rack so that if there's a bottom element, it's not being exposed to the element. Or while I'm baking, I might cover it, but then I also might put another steel on top of it. So it creates like a little deck oven environment, uh, but protects it from the direct flame or the direct, you know, electric element or whatever. So there's all these little things that you can do. Um, if you're liking the rise you're getting out of the covered par bake, but you're like, oh, it's actually still a little wet. That's okay. You can turn the temperature down a little bit, uh, bake it for a little longer covered. Um, you can even uncover it and bake it for a little bit of time uncovered, but without top. So still do a par bake, but just uncover it, let the excess moisture out and then go in with your top bakes. Cause what I found is like, no matter what kind of pizza you're baking from a bar to uh, a Detroit, like you're going from this thickness to this thickness, the toppings still take about 10 minutes to brown up. Yeah. So you can't bake this thick of a dough at the same time you bake that thick of a dough. So that's why I've been liking the covered par bake. Even I even do it for my bar pizzas. I'll do a short covered par bake for my bars and then I'll finish my bars out of pan directly on the stone to get them nice and crispy. Um, but I find that gives them a little bit more rise too. And then it can handle the structure, can get it kind of established. And it can handle those extra toppings being thrown on that bar pizza. But that's just no one probably par, cover par bakes a bar pizza. That's just me. Okay. I will re look into covered par bakes and just try to bake for longer and maybe even lower just so I can, because I did like the higher hydration. I just wasn't uh, digging the texture, but good tips on that. It might just be you steam built up in there. You just got to get that steam out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sorry, I think we do have a lag. My bad. Um, so do you do you happen to know why people like to show off their gluten network after uh, proofing their dough? And like, does that does that do anything other than like make a good IG video? And does that damage the dough? I, I saw someone do it today. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, David? Um, so. I only do that when I've overproofed my dough. And I'm like, I need to take a picture of this because what else am I going to do with this overproofed dough and try to make like rescue focaccia this thing? Um, I don't know. I just think it's like kind of fits the kind of stranger things thing that's going on. Like it just kind of looks like the upside down and maybe there's something there. I don't know. It's just, I don't think anyone does it because it like helps their dough. I think you just do it because it looks cool. And I think that's all damage. No, probably not. Unless you're ripping big holes in it. No, but I think it's just, it looks cool. Okay. And I wasn't pointing at you. I didn't realize you, you actually did that, but I guess my question then is, is that what I should be close to aiming for in my proof, in my bulk proof, getting it to that level of gluten activity? No, I think, I think when it looks like that personally, I think that I know kind of what you're talking about. It looks very spider webby and like just kind of over the top structure. Um, I think at that point it's probably overinflated. And now with yeasted doughs, that probably doesn't make a big difference. Um, but with sourdough, because we have that extra enzymatic activity, that tells me that as soon as I start to stretch that dough, there's no structure left in that thing. Like the structure I'm seeing right now, that's going to all tear as soon as I start to put any pressure on it. Um, And you really only get to that overinflated state. You don't, that doesn't decouple from the rippability of now this overproved sourdough. In the yeast of dough, usually don't have to worry about it. You know, punch it back, reshape it, give it a couple more hours and be fine because you're not battling that lactic acid bacteria and acidification and the maturation of the, those enzymes going at that structure. Um, but in sourdough at that point, I say it's overproven, it's just going to tear. Okay. Final question for you, if that's okay. Yeah, man. Biga, when are you going to, yeah. when are you going to show us the way I saw your Marco yeah. class so, and I was like, yeah. holy crap. 
Yeah. So Marco, um, as kind of a going away thing at Uni when I was leaving HQ, um, I wanted to, to get Marco in and kind of do a really fun class for the team. So we got Marco Fuso in. Um, if you don't know who Marco Fuso is and you're a pizza person, look him up. Uh, Marco's kind of become this weird king of Biga, um, which is Marco will be the first person to tell you he's not the first person to do Biga. Uh, he just become this Biga guy. But um, he taught looks us so good. how to do yeast and Biga, and he does um, the kind of modern Neapolitan style pizzas. Um, you know the Canotto style with the which he told me just it, it kind of translates to dinghy like inflatable lifeboat where yeah. it has just like a massive you know rim know. Yeah. um so here's the thing that really inspired me about working with marco is i was struggling with these things wrestling with these concepts of like um maturation and uh, sorry with um with respiration and biga kind of clicked it all for me with like oh you make a biga it's the same thing i was talking about earlier you make a biga and that access to oxygen allows the yeast to replicate. So Bigo was invented to save yeast. So you make a Bigo with a very, very small amount of yeast and that pre-ferment creates more yeast because it's so dry, has such um, ample uh, access to oxygen that those yeast just replicate and replicate and replicate and replicate. So by the time you add that now um, Bigo mixture to your dough, you're just throwing a ton of yeast in there. Um, and that's what gives you those massive crusts. Like and it, the crazy thing was, is they didn't prove for very long. And he had us like shaping 80% hydration dough and then like cold crashing it for like a really short amount of time just to kind of keep the fermentation under control and then pulling them out and basically stretching them kind of cold because they were so extensible because they were 80% water. They were just opening up so fast. Mm. But, and, then, and then the way, the way you, um, the way you launch them too in the ovens, like in Coda 16, we were making them in Coda 16. Like we had to drop the oven to off or like ultra low just to get like a good pot. But then they're so tall that that flame coming over the top is just completely destroying that crust. So you need to let it sit in the hot environment. Like I think Vigo would probably do better in like a deck oven environment than like a wood fired environment. Um, so I think the, the biggest stuff I got really excited about eating the Biga and being like, I really want to replicate this in sourdough. And I did a few experiments with it. It was kind of towards the, the you know, towards the time I started to need to pack up and, and leave Scotland. So I've, I've kind of shelved it, but, um, I think this fall I'm going to jump into it again and just apply the same principles with sourdough, very small seed, very, very dry pre-ferment ton of access to oxygen let that replication that natural replication happen chuck that into um you know decently hydrated dough and kind of see where that gets me so i tried it a couple times i've asked for marco's help because he's also really into sourdough too um so we connected on that and he's going to coach me through a couple of the things that i'm seeing trying to do the biga um but yeah i think it'll be a fun a fun little sourdough experiment a question got asked really quick um can you develop a biga recipe without the need of a mixer I don't see why not. Um, I did my um, Biga without a mixer. Um, he does the high-speed mixer with really high hydration stuff just to build that gluten structure really fast because there's so much yeast in it. You got to remember that you're playing it, you're you're fighting the clock. So with the mixer, we talked about that like that road to proof, right? You think of a Biga as just like this massive yeast bomb in your dough. You got to fight the clock where that proofing clock, you're going to reach it really fast because it's, it's moving so quickly. He actually sometimes will add like ice water to it just to keep the dough temperature low. Um, so it doesn't overproof. You can't be sitting there doing stretch and folds every, you know, 30 minutes because it's going to, especially with sourdough, it's just going to proof too quickly. So the mixer helps you get ahead of it. You prove it really, you mix it. So you establish all that structure, um, so that it can prove without you having to touch it. Cause every time you touch it, you're just degassing it. Um, and it might not even have enough structure if you're doing like a stretching pool technique to even hold all that gas that it's making. So, um, I, yes, you can do a Biga recipe without a mixer. Uh, I would probably use like a slap and pull technique, um, and, and like a proper need to still like get, build some gluten strength quickly. It's the same recipe. Like in my baking book, I teach the same thing whenever I add sugar to dough. 
I don't do stretch and fold techniques. I do a proper need because it's the same thing. I'm just adding gasoline to that fire by dropping sugar on there. Um, so I need to uh, go in and build some structure quickly so I can't waste the time um, you know, doing the stretch and folds because it just won't establish that structure quickly enough. That was me nerding out a whole lot about uh, about yeast and bacteria right there for the past almost an hour. That was probably a lot of this. You started taking notes in the beginning and then you just gave up. No, no, no. It's not that I gave up. It's I was trying to be very present. Uh, I also yeah, was hoping no, I got that... You. <laughs> I uh, I did your um, YCH yeasted. What's comparable the hydration? Comparable hydration, and I was taking one of his yeah. recipes and trying to convert it to a sourdough recipe, and it just seemed like a very, very, very tiny, tiny amount of sourdough in order to do it. And so, is that even possible? Could could a point oh one percent inoculation hide um, leaven abiga? Or eleven, yeah, uh, yeah. So that's what I gotta try. That's what I gotta try. So I do about 160, depending on the type of yeast you're using. I think he uses fresh yeast, so you're at like a hundredth of the weight for fresh yeast. Um, so yeah, it is a really, really small amount because he does such a small amount anyway of of fresh yeast because it's such a long fermentation time. Um, again, I'm using that word kind of probably improperly because it's not actually fermenting much it's it's respirating um but that's what i'm going to try to do i did the same math i came home with my bigger recipe and i'm doing my ych and i'm like so basically i just have to like sneeze some sourdough onto it and just hope it works <laughs> yeah exactly um i don't know that he knows all of the science behind it but uh naturally leavened pizza ethan spicer uh does all natural sourdough um biggest crust i've ever seen bigger method as well check him out yeah maybe come on man he can I, I listen help to every episode, bro. i've got that was a double <laughs> episode come on you think i don't know you think i don't know you think i don't listen to what's good though i don't like to assume that people do <laughs> we forgot to start the show what's happening what's good though it's your boy i drift all right what do you want to leave the audience with today <laughs> hey, what, hey i start the show i start the show with the same question there's no right or wrong answer idris what's good though um you are uh what's good though <laughs> being back in california right now but you know close enough oregon in in a, in a couple of months just uh you being stateside that's what's good though yeah and the same in the same time zone yeah, seriously. No, no more slice of summer meetings trying to figure out when we can meet on three different times. <laughs> <laughs> you like being like ready to, you know, calm down and kind of like get to bed in a couple of hours while me and Blaine and Scott are just like starting our day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Nice, man. What do you want to leave the audience with today? Well, um, bake more. Definitely, because I feel like that's the only way I'm going to be able to find my truths um, and take really, really good notes. I feel like I'm not strong in the scientific method, um, but the, the framework that you laid out for me at least gives me a better, a bigger picture of what I should be for each time I bake. Yeah, nice, man. Yeah, it's, it's like I like. As a kid, you touch stuff to see if it was hot. You tried something to see if it worked or not. And you tried it again to see if it worked. And you tried it again to see if it worked. And somewhere along the line, our education system convinces kids they're not smart enough for math or they're not good enough for math. They can't do science or, oh, you're more of a language person or whatever. And it makes me so mad because like, then you get that in your head and then it's just like this self-doubt that perpetuates. And so when you get into something like this and you get motivated to want to bake and you see a couple of equations go right back to like high school algebra and you're like, I'm not good at math. It's like, if you're motivated to do it, this isn't difficult stuff. Like you were born to do this stuff. Like you're born to experiment. It's just about taking good notes. And that's all about just holding yourself accountable to taking good notes. And if you want to do something and you know, this is the way to do it. Like you just got to hold yourself accountable to do it and just make sure you do it. Like I'm telling you the best way to get better at this is taking good notes. And if you believe me, then just start taking good notes. And if you decide not to, that's on you. But, you know, that's, that's the way you're going to get better at this quickly 
is, is there's some people that can do this completely by hand. There's people who do this all the time. My great grandmother did this all the time without a kitchen scale. I have no idea how, <laughs> but she did. I need a kitchen scale. I need a pen and paper. That's what works for me. And I think it'll definitely work for you too. You just got to hold yourself accountable to it. I really do. It's like my notes, if you see it, are all over the place. I have a notepad on uh, in the count in the kitchen. I have an I, uh, Apple iNotes. Like it's all so unorganized. And I think I just need like one place and I need to hold myself accountable to it. Otherwise, it's just, it's going to go nowhere. Oh, don't get me wrong. I'm exactly the same. I have notes <laughs> everywhere. Like my wife for Father's Day last year got me three just like notepads just so I could leave them around the house. Cause I'm always like, I need a notepad. I need a pen. I need a pen. Where's a pen? And I'm like looking through drawers. I'm like, there was a pencil in here. There was a pen. There was a notepad in here yesterday. What happened to it? And so she just like set some around the house for me because I'm like 246 grams. I got to remember 246 grams. I'm going to forget. I'm going to (laughs) forget. There's one here. There's one by the, uh, my gym rack. There's one in my bed. There's one in my cabinet. I, they're all over the place. Now it's just a matter of like being consistent with it. yeah, yeah, I would get sure. that going. Nice, man. I'm excited, dude. I'm excited to see uh, what you're able to do for the pizza early pop up. I'm excited to have you get your dough on lock. And I'm stoked that you've been doing sourdough. I had no idea that you were exclusively sourdough. I know that you've been using it a lot, but I, I had no idea that you were doing 100%. I gave my yeast to my, my uh, IDY to my brother because he started making more pizza. And uh, yeah, I have no IDY at home. My only, my only roadblock, really, and it's because I don't have neighbors to give away my pizza to is making so much pizza. Like I can't, For sure. I can't freeze it. I don't want to throw it away. So that's really my only thing like stopping me. Like I could, I could mix and bake every day. No problem. But to see yeah. that food go to waste and uh, yeah. Nolan just joined, I'm, I'm trying to lose some weight before I go to this wedding. Uh, and so like, I have really <laughs> been limiting my pizza consumption lately. And so that's yeah. what's that's what's halt, that's what's been halting my progress. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's the um, did Jacob Rosendahl just joined. Jacob, it's like four in the morning, dude. What are you doing? Get <laughs> out of here. Go back to bed, homie. Um, no, so I yeah, I, I'm with you. I will challenge you and bet that you you've got enough neighbors. I'll challenge you on that point that that you can make enough pizza. But I'll also challenge you on freezing next time if you want. I can go through my uh, my anti griddle freezer setup on how to properly freeze pizzas right out of the oven, and it works every time, and it's not chewy, and it. <laughs> Jacob, get out of here working hard, chilling on Instagram. Uh, you can go, but yeah, you can um, you can freeze pizzas right out of the oven um, and reheat them in your home oven, and it tastes like they just came out of a pizza. Oven. It's ridiculous. I freeze a pizza almost every time I bake. Cause I'll always make multiple. And like the, the problem yeah. is I don't have enough uh, storage space. My wife yeah. today just told me if you find a freezer that matches our fridge, so it doesn't look all weird, I can get one. She has been saying no to me for months, maybe a year. <laughs> so I think I'm going to be able to get a freezer. Hand them out to people well, as like parting gifts. Here you go. Have this. Bro, uh, my neighbors in I, California, you've got a garage, right? Uh-huh. You, you live in California. You got a garage. How do you not have a garage fridge? Everybody in California has got a garage fridge. Dude, I think I think my wife and I have been anti because both of our parents had one. And it's just like hoarder <laughs> status. And, it, oh, and we, yeah. And like, I, was, I don't know. We, we live in a two bed, two bath. And it's like, you know, space is limited. Let's put it that way. And so yeah. we don't, we don't have a separate fridge. But I think I am winning the battle on the chest freezer. And yes. yeah, parting gifts. I'll be able to just love that and give away. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Nice. Well, I'm going to be coming through the Bay, uh, probably the end of next month. So last time, uh, we, I was in the Bay, me and you ended up being able to get together despite COVID and go get some good pizza. So I'm hoping to be able to do the same thing this time. How's that sound? And we got to bring this guy too. I'm down. If you uh, at your door for an hour waiting for you, bro. I, I really don't know. I'm so sorry. Bad timing. <laughs> um, let me know when that happens um, next month. 
whenever, two months from now, whatever. And I also got to visit you in Oregon. It's like one of my favorite, like quick destinations. Um, I've driven there. I've flown there. So easy to get to. I love all of Oregon. Oakland, except for Oakland to Eugene, uh, Southwest Airlines. I've got a route now. Oakland to Eugene direct. What? Crazy, oh. right? Hell yeah. <laughs> oh, let's go I'm, we're hanging out I'm, I'm gonna go find me a hotel and we're gonna make some dough let's do it <laughs> yeah sweet i think we should get dub season tickets next year and we can just go hang yeah. out there how's that sound i would love to see a duck <laughs> oh my goodness they look cracking um are you comfortable telling jim where you're at he says he's heading to bend in two weeks bend is beautiful bro one of my favorite places yeah so bend Bend is directly uh, is directly east, so I'm gonna be in Eugene. Yeah, yeah. So Bend, totally Bend, accessible east. Bend is great. Nice. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna head out. I appreciate you getting on here, man. So short notice and wanted to chat. I listened to your episode on sourdough workflow, and I was like, I feel like I, I haven't talked to Idrif in so long. We got to chat. I'm, I'm I want to be able to update that episode in a year from now and say like all of that shit I said was false. <laughs> 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 the crazy thing is, is a year after that, you'd have to do the same exact thing because you learn so much. Like I am, every time I think I'm coming down from Mount Stupid, I feel like I'm just going into another pitch, going back up Mount Stupid again. And I'm like, oh, I figured out enzymes. I know how that works now. Cool. I'm coming back down. I'm, I'm really learning about this stuff. And then Marco Puso is like, oh, do you know only 7% of the starches? in the milled grain or cracked properly to be able to be digested by the enzymes. And I'm like, dang, dude, I don't know anything about flour anymore. I'm straight up. I'm not stupid again. <laughs> Crazy. As long yeah, as it depends we keep on, the on hiking, it's all good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. 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 Nice, man. Thank I'll you talk so to much you for your time. I'll, I'll hit you up when I'm headed back up. I mean, I'll talk to you before then, but I'll, I'll let you know when I'm back in the day. Yeah. Later. Right, bye. See you later. Mike, thank you so, so much. Seriously, honestly, you are such a great friend and a great mentor too. I don't know where I'd be without you, man. Seriously. Um, I really appreciate all of the time you've given me. And as always, I can't wait to see your pizza journey continue. And hopefully that includes you and me hanging out and talking more. To you, the listener. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. If you want a great starting point for sourdough, please check out Mike Bayona's book, Baking with Rose Hill Sourdough, or Pizza with Rose Hill Sourdough. I will link to both of those in the show notes. Seriously, the book has changed my life. Um, And it's helped a lot of people as well. So check that out. Uh, Also, if you're not already doing so, find Mike on Instagram. He has some amazing content with some of his tests, some of his recipes, some just awesome pictures there too. I'll link to everything in the show's description. If you're thinking about doing the summer charity pop-up, now is the time to sign up. Pizza only pop-up link for that will be in the show note as well. Other than that, have a great freaking day. I love you. Till next time. Peace.